We will get started with session uh, three, and this one is titled, uh, I Saw That I Was Naked. And this is uh, obviously quoting Adam in the Garden of Eden, uh, when we have the first, let's say, human experience of guilt and shame uh, related to their fall. So what I would like to do is uh, first read that text in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter three, um, and then let's say, jump back out and ask the question, okay, how do we, how do we make sense of guilt and shame uh, and you'll notice within this section, we'll also talk about doubt and assurance as well. All right. Well. <laughs> nice. All right. <laughs> well, I'll be reading Genesis three while she does that spider. Um, So uh, this is, I'm going to be skipping around in this, but we'll start in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. This is uh, Eve talking to the serpent. She tells the serpent uh, that God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you shall die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So... Adam and Eve eat of the tree. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And from there, we will, let's say, stop because this is, let's say, the, the uh, it's, getting a, it's going to get a little off the point, the main point. But what you have is Adam and Eve sin. Uh, they fall. They disobey God's good word. And uh, an immediate result of the fall of sin is broken fellowship with God, let's say, actualized or felt by guilt and shame in his presence. So they're, they're afraid of one another. So they, they hide themselves. They even try to clothe and cover their nakedness. They're aware of their guilt. They're aware of their shame. God recognizes this, and when he says, oh, you, you're aware that you're naked, I know what's happened. I know that you've eaten of, of the tree. So God knows that their awareness of guilt and shame is, in some sense, connected or caused by their sin. Okay, so what I'm doing right now is I'm just going to frame, let's say, a biblical take on the objective reality of guilt and shame. So the scripture talks about guilt and shame in a couple of ways, but let's say the foundational way it talks about it is that guilt and shame are objective realities fixed into the world. When we sin, and when we feel the effects of sin, that is where a lot of guilt and shame comes from. And, 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 it's, and it's not bad guilt or bad shame. In fact, uh, much of the guilt and shame we see in Scripture and in the New Testament even, when people are encountering Jesus, is a reflection on their own lack in light of God's presence. They feel guilty, they feel they'll identify as sinful, they feel condemned, because of their lack in the presence of a holy God. So guilt and shame, they're objective realities. They're things that tell us things that are actually true about ourselves. We also have another category that scripture talks about, which is what I would call the subjective category of guilt and shame, which is divorced from the objective reality. And by that I mean, uh, you can also have a Christian who in a post-conversion experience, after they've been converted, they go through this, this place where they feel particularly guilty about a sin that they've done in their past. 
and they, that haunts them or they think about it all the time. They feel guilt and shame around that sin which they've previously committed. And that is a subjective experience that's not necessarily rooted in their objective reality, but they nevertheless walk through that. Okay, so a Christian worldview has both a objective dealing with guilt and shame and a subjective dealing with guilt and shame. And the reason I'm laying that out is because we're going to pivot right now and say, how does the worldview guilt and shame? This will correlate with how the world views anxiousness. The world views these things not as objective, but as purely subjective. Okay? So guilt and shame are subjective things, not from God to, to man. They're subjective from man to man, and particularly from previous traditions of man to our current state. Okay? So how do you deal with guilt and shame in this culture if it's a subjective thing? Well, you celebrate the previously shameful or guilty thing until it becomes no longer shameful or guilty. Okay, if you need an example of this, uh, the month of June every single year, what do we celebrate? The Pride Parade, right? And why do we do that? Well, the culture is telling us to celebrate something that was previously seen as shameful, something that's previously not to be celebrated. We see this as well with, uh, for example, um, people uh, having uh, what we would previously call an adulterous relationship. Now we've seasoned language down to, oh, you know, they, they had an affair and they, we, we, you know, we kind of go to all this. And eventually what we say is they found their true love. We celebrate it, something that was previously shameful or previously incurring of guilt. We do this all the time. The culture basically says something in effect of, well, because it's a subjective thing, guilt and shame, the way to deal with it is to celebrate it, normalize it, standardize it, and that will deal with the ultimate, uh, the ultimate guilt and shame that we feel. Now, if it was subjective, then that would actually be a pretty good solution, right? Because it's just really tradition that's informing our current reality. And so, you know, old traditional values, if we can uproot those and we can celebrate things that they didn't really value, then the feelings of guilt and shame around those other, let's say, deviancies would go away. But we know that's not entirely true, partially because right now, uh, it would be hard to imagine a time in human history where we celebrated so many things that we would consider, let's say, a generation ago were uh, devious or shameful behaviors. Uh, we've never celebrated them more, and people have never felt such guilt and shame weighing down on them as a result of engaging in these things. If you want, let's say, to look at like, clinical evidence of this, uh, people who struggle with, for example, let's say, sexual identity or have a transgender identity or something like that, uh, they have astronomically higher rates of suicide and, and uh, depression, more than any other community. The way the world says, the, the world says that is caused by society putting shame and guilt on them. But the world also simultaneously has, celebrates almost no other people more than those people. And so how do we, how do we make sense of that? It's not matching up, right? We, we simultaneously celebrate it more than almost anything else. And they feel more despair, guilt, shame than anything else. So I argue that that's an evidence that it's not simply a subjective reality. It's not simply subjective. So how do we, how do we put these things together, okay? The Christian worldview would say it's objective and subjective, but the objective thing is the first thing we need to take care of. So if someone's a non-believer, not a Christian, and they have this burden of guilt, burden of shame, anxiety that they struggle with, this uncertainty in their soul, and they ask you, you know, what should I do with this? Well, the first thing you want to do is you want to, you want to get to, okay, what is the objective thing in their life that's causing this? Often it is the case 
that God uses our subjective conscience and our subjective feeling of inadequacy and guilt to drive us to an objective dealing with our sin. When we feel guilt about something that we've done, let's say a previous sin, so far as our conscience is not seared, that actually drives us to needing to make ourselves right with God. Why I say make ourselves right? By his means, through Christ on the cross. So the subjective feeling is not always a bad thing. That's my point. If someone is feeling anxious, the solution to their anxiety from a Christian worldview is first and foremost to actually deal with the core issue of guilt and shame and not pretend like it's just some subjective reality that we need to therapy away. Okay? So that's, let's say, at the core of it. Now, that does not mean that when you deal with the objective reality that all of a sudden all the subjective experiences also go away. As Christians, we can also say that there are people that we know love the Lord, believe in his promise, have confessed Jesus as their Lord, live in accord with his word, and nevertheless walk through deep periods of experiential guilt and shame, despair, depression, whatever you want to call that. There's the subjective feeling of sin from the past, maybe an ongoing or an abiding sin in their life that drives them to despair because they haven't yet uh, found relief from it, whatever that might be. So if we know that the objective thing has been dealt with, we know that they've, let's say, gone to the cross, confessed their sin, believed on the Lord, but we know that they have this abiding subjective experience, we can ask the question, well, how do we deal with that kind of a person? How do we deal with someone who has all these un abiding subjective feelings of guilt and shame? There's none that I think uh, drives us to a higher uh, consideration than considering our salvation itself. We feel that our, our previous sin drives us to such a state of guilt, such a state of shame, such a state of despondency that we think, no way could I actually be saved. That, that's uh, not an uncommon Christian confession. And so what we do with these subjective things is we have to always be uh, informing them with the objective reality of what's actually occurred in order to help us along the way as we are subjectively walking through these experiences. So there's a couple of texts that we would turn to to first, let's say, look at Christians. And then at the tail end of this, let's pivot to someone who is a non-Christian and struggling uh, more so with this. So I'll, I'll go first to Christians and then to non-Christians. So with Christians, I'm going to look particularly at the category of doubt and assurance. And the first text I want to turn to is John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. Remember the abiding problem that causes shame and guilt, at least according to scripture, is our objective brokenness with God. And as Christians, we would say that's been dealt with. But then there's also the Christian experience of doubting our own salvation, doubting our own rightness before God. And it is here where John chapter 10, Jesus says these words in verse 28. Or sorry, I'll, I'll start in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and, they, uh, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So here is Jesus talking to uh, his disciples, talking about what he's like, what the Father is like, and he's saying his salvation is irrevocable. Now imagine you're a Christian, you're a disciple, you're going, you know, I'm going to have these subjective experiences of guilt and shame that uh, are maybe unrelated to my objective reality. What, what is something I need to be sure of in that moment? You need to be sure the objective reality hasn't shifted just because you subjectively are experiencing something different. His salvation is irrevocable, objectively so. 
he actually seals that not only with himself, no one's able to snatch them out of my hand, but verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's not a small statement about the objective fixation of salvation. Okay? Now let's see another author talking about the same thing. I'm going to go to a famous text on this, but Romans 8. I think it's important that we hear these words, remind ourselves of this truth. And I want to read, starting in verse 35. Verse 35 of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And this is, in Paul's frame, a direct correlation to, let's say, faith in Christ, oneness with Christ. Who will separate us from that? He's going to list some contenders. Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Okay, now think about that list. Tribulation, let's say, suffering. Distress, our, our despair. Persecution from the world around us. Famine. Nakedness. So if we're not clothed, danger or sword, will, will that separate us from the love of Christ? All these, let's say, man-made inventions. Verse 36 is actually a quote from Psalm 44. He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And his conclusion is, therefore, there's verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things currently present, nor things to come in the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There here's Paul's same statement that Jesus says. Jesus says, nothing can snatch them out of the Father's hand, nothing can snatch them out of my hand. Paul says, I'm certain, after having considered all the contenders, nothing can change their objective state of salvation. Nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. There's an Old Testament consideration, I won't turn there, but in Isaiah 49, God is talking to the people of Israel, and he says, will a nursing mother forget the child whom she nursed? No, but possibly. But even so, I will not forget my people Israel. He's telling them this in the midst of their exile. They've already been conquered. They've already been taken. Now Isaiah has turned his prophecies toward the future of their redemption. And God says to his beloved people, I will never forget them. It's possible for a mother to forget her child. It is not possible for me to forget my children, my, my people. So this is God making objective declarations about our objective reality of guilt and shame. So if you're a Christian, you struggle with guilt and shame. The first step is to remind yourself of the objective truth about salvation, which is that Jesus didn't die for you on the cross only insofar as you believe that he died for you on the cross. He either objectively did so or he objectively did not. So if you've made that confession, if you've confessed your sin to the Lord, what does Christ say in his word? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We either believe his word or we don't. Subjective feelings aside. Okay. Now that doesn't necessarily solve the subjective problem. All I'm saying is it anchors it into a real thing. Okay. Now let's say to the subjective experience of a Christian, what would be the next step beyond that? After we've reminded ourselves of concrete truth. By the way, this is for you if you're struggling with this or if you're thinking about someone else is struggling with this. First step, remind them of objective, concrete reality. And then consider this. This is a quote from uh, Dr. Ian Campbell. He says, to be sure that we are saved requires in some part the possibility that we may not be. His argument is that if we struggle with security, assurance of our salvation, our rightness before God, our, we struggle with feeling that our guilt is still ours to bear, our shame is still ours to bear, if we, if we struggle with this, 
that's actually a good thing. It could possibly be the very thing which God uses to assure us that we are not indeed still under guilt, still under shame. Fear, which drives us to God, is a potentially healthy experience, is the point. A feeling of guilt, a feeling of despondency that drives us to God is a potentially healthy experience. Calvin will say it this way. He will say, he who is struggling with his own weakness and then presses faithfully in faith, or sorry, presses in faith towards that moment of anxiety, he is already in large part victorious. So he who is struggling with his own weakness presses forward in faith despite that anxiety, he's already in some part victorious. His point is that exercise of feeling the shame, feeling the subjective experience and taking that back to God is in some means an exercise in strengthening our faith, encouraging us. It's actually possibly a good thing. It's a means by which God exercises our muscles, if you will. So as Christians, we have an objective truth about us that's been declared from all eternity. Nothing can snatch us from the hand of God. Paul confirms this and says none of the contenders held up. None of them can snatch us from God's hands. Subjectively, we may still experience this. and We'll, we'll deal more with this in, in the final session as well. Um, actually, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's an example of this. But the objective truth is that's not changing. Our objective reality does not change. That's the first thing we need to remind ourselves of despite our subjective experiences. Okay, now let's pivot and go back to a, a non-believer, someone who doesn't confess Christ as Lord, who has all these subjective experiences. And they, they, they put the question to you, how would I deal with this? You would have to first tell them you have to deal with the objective thing first. You have to deal with their, your objective shortcoming. Your, your lack of peace with God is probably the first and foremost thing that's driving you to a lack of peace with yourself and those around you. In fact, all the other anxiousness, depression, guilt, and shame that you feel, this is not something we want to uh, nullify in their life. We don't want to just affirm someone and say, oh no, that's actually not true about you, or no, that, that's something you shouldn't feel guilty about. That would actually be a therapeutic way to help them, but not actually a helpful way to, to make them reconcile with their sin. Now, if you think that might not be particularly loving, consider Jesus with the woman who's uh, uh, brought before him. She comes in while he's eating dinner uh, with, with Simon the Pharisee. Uh, and she comes and she sits before him. She washes uh, his feet. And uh, what does he say to her? He says something to the effect of, she's a marvelous, magnificent, great sinner, and she's forgiven. And then he sends her back out. He, he doesn't try to deal with her sin by saying, oh, you don't really have sin to deal with. And I don't think as Christians we should tell people around us, you don't really have sin to deal with, you don't have guilt to deal with before God. That would be an unloving thing to do because we're not actually helping them deal with their problem. But what we wouldn't want to do is only leave the message of condemnation without leaving the message of hope, right? The message of the gospel is both very condemning and very hopeful, kind of all packaged together. And if we think it's maybe a hard message to hear, we might be forgetting that on the other side of the, you are a sinner in need of a savior and your guilt is real because you actually have sin. And then we flip that around by saying, but Jesus actually dealt with your sin on the cross objectively for all eternity. If you only call out to his name, believe and trust in him. Now, I don't know a better way to deal with your guilt and shame than to objectively just put it away. That's better than any therapeutic treatment you could offer them. That's better than any subjective, let's say, burst of energy that you could give them, which might carry them through to next Tuesday, and that's it. You can deal with their sin objectively and their guilt objectively, and God by his spirit can actually give them an abiding peace with him, which will, as Paul says, surpass all understanding. 
So that abiding peace is something they cannot have apart from rightness with the Father. And so you actually, you actually leverage the guilt, leverage the shame to the purpose that it serves. In the same way for a Christian, it serves the purpose of reminding us of what we need reconciliation with before God. For the Christian, it's a reminder that we actually do have reconciliation before God. And for the non-Christian, it's a, it's a reminder to actually get that reconciliation before we can move forward. So in, in both cases, the guilt and the shame actually drives us to a similar place, either an awareness of our lack of uh, righteousness before holy God, or a recognition of the fact that we have righteousness before holy God because of Jesus Christ. In both cases, it serves its purpose, the guilt and the shame. So there are, let's say, in some measure, cultural things that drive guilt and shame and things like this. For example, appearance and all that stuff. Obviously, I'm not dealing with any of those things right now. I'm dealing primarily with things that we would say are sinful, according to scripture, and that culture seeks to celebrate away into a lack of shame, a lack of guilt. My point in all of this is that doesn't actually work in an abiding way. It doesn't work in a satisfying way. And so we need to hold on to the objective reality of what these things are talking about with an awareness that the objective and the subjective might in some senses not be linked together. For example, a Christian that's objectively right before God and feels subjectively like they actually still have sin that abides. So uh, in the last piece, I just want to quote uh, from uh, uh, a hymn that I think captures the spirit of this very well. You know, Christians are asking the question, okay, what if, what if my faith sucks? This is, uh, this is what uh, one hymn author has wrote. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, yet he will hold me fast. The point of that lyric, the point of those that stanza, is to anchor our subjective experiences in the objective reality of Christ. Our faith will fail, the tempter could prevail, I could probably not keep my hold, life has a dreadful path, and my love is often cold towards God. And yet, in all these things, what's the reminder? He will hold me fast. How one theologian summarizes it. So with that, <coughs> with that, I'll close uh, this session, and then we'll go to questions. <coughs> and then, uh, if not, you can take a break, and we'll go to the very last session.